Amen. Well, you guys can be seated. Kind of feels like a football game. Up, down, up, down. Never know who's... No, I'm just kidding. All right. Ecclesiastes 8. So if you're, if you're following along with where Jana just read uh, from chapter 7, we're going to pick up in the very next chapter. We're going to wrap up Ecclesiastes today. Uh, if you need a Bible, there's one in front of you. In fact, I can give you the page number. It's 557 is where we're going to be. Um, I was just listening to this verse 8 as, as Jana read it to us. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And I was just thinking uh, just over the last week, um, last Sunday, we got to do the, finally the public celebration for Alex and Renee. Renee, who's singing. Uh, Alex, our youth director. That was fun. And so it was super cool to be there, not to put them on the spot, but totally putting them on the spot. Now that they're married, they sit on opposite ends of the church. That's beautiful. It's amazing the marriage relationships we develop here. But, uh, and then uh, uh, for those of you who've heard, uh, Granny, if you know who that is, passed away uh, about a week ago. And uh, if you knew her, you probably knew her by Granny. I didn't even know she had a real name for a long time. And uh, thinking about kind of the contrast, if you will, the beginning of a marriage, and to be fair, Alex and Renee got married during COVID, and this was their, they finally got to do the ceremony they wanted to do, which was way more fun and just way cooler than I thought it was going to be. It was just trying to figure out how do we do this after we've already done this, and it was really great. But to hear this verse, I want you to hear it again. Ecclesiastes 7, 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Sometimes we hear scripture, and I asked this question last week. We started with, like, do we really believe that? Right? Do we really that better is the end of a thing than its beginning? And there's a lot of ways in which that is true. If you take a life, you are born into this world in need of a savior, right? Granny will go on and live her, went on and lived her life uh, to an old age and died in faith. Better than born in sin, right? And a marriage should be like that. It should begin in its infancy. And I know that there's a lot of fun things that get us to marriage. A lot of, we'll say, emotion, right? And, and, and those of you who have been married for a long time, you know this, that what you call love when you first get engaged or get married is nothing like what you end up with, right? And, and it develops and grows into this covenantal relationship and commitment that is powerful and far beyond the feelings of two young people. And I'm not knocking that, just saying that it grows, right? Wisdom is how we live life knowing things, how we live life with learned experience. In fact, wisdom in life, for the most part, comes with age. You want financial wisdom? I love going to Jim DeBee, right? And, and who a longtime wise man, right? I wouldn't necessarily run to Abby, though I love Abby, right? <laughs> right? Nothing personal, just age, wisdom. It's learned experiences. How do we live the truths of God? How do we live them knowing that there is a better perspective, a different perspective? How do we live the life knowing that at the end of our, that the end of our life will come? And how do we live in the middle? How do we live so that that end is better than the beginning? So it's way different than I wanted to start this, but let me just say this. This is our final week in Ecclesiastes. We wanted to do a few weeks in the wisdom literature as a summary of the Old Testament. It's been what we've focused on, right? We began in the Torah. 
We taught Exodus, so kind of the beginning to the people, the deliverance, and to all the way to the edge of the promised land and Israel as a people group, the covenant people that God is using to share his redemptive plan with the world. Doesn't mean they always did that, just what they were created to be. Much like the church today, God's covenant people with whom he has chosen to share his redemptive plan with the world. Not always where we excel, that is what we're created to be. So Israel, in First and Second Samuel, we saw the rise and the fall. We saw the institution of prophets and kings. We saw how God chooses to lead his people and how people often respond. He wanted to lead them by his voice through his prophets. They said, we want a king like the world around us. And so we watched as they had a series of good and bad kings, and we read through the history of the rise and the fall of Israel, including some of the prophets that called them to return. If you back up before we started this, the last book we taught was Isaiah. Isaiah existed in that period of calling God's people to return to him. Listen, you're way over here. God wants you over here. Return. Or the exile is going to happen. In the midst of all of this, some people capture godly wisdom, what we call uh, practical theology, God's word for practical life. And so Daniel will be the beginning of a prophet during the exile, during Israel's exile into Babylon for their disobedience, where God sends them, causes them to go to regain their attention. And then we'll close up the year looking at Ezra and Nehemiah as they begin to rebuild. All of this should be a glaring warning for us, the church. Where are we, the church, off track? Where is God calling us to return? How far will we let that go? Will we require God to send us into exile? Or maybe another way of saying this, maybe use someone else. Maybe take away the blessing that has been the American church in the past. And maybe choose someone else. What will it take to get our attention? So that's what we'll pick up today. We're going to be in, uh, we're, going to, we're going to finish Ecclesiastes today, and I want to give you a main idea, the fear of the Lord. This has been something we've been talking about. Wisdom literature commonly speaks about having the fear of the Lord. A, sorry, there's my typo. Having fear of the Lord. Let's just do that. Having fear of God. Christianity often waters this down and misses how it can shape our lives. You'll hear pastors and teachers say, well, it's not really like fear, fear. It's like reverence or respect. No, 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 it's fear. That we should fear God. Here's how Jesus says it, and we'll let him define it for us. Can we have the next slide? And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and the body in hell. Jesus is not unclear about how he means fear. Fear God, who is eternal. Fear God, who is in charge. Fear God, who is all authoritative and all powerful. Biblically, we call this omnipotent, all-powerful, all-present, right? Eternal. Don't fear the human being sitting next to you who can only do so much damage. At worst, take your life or make your life miserable. I don't mean your spouse. Fear God. Fear of the Lord is something that the American church for sure needs to reclaim an understanding of. And so that's where Solomon's going to take us today. Ecclesiastes verse one, 8, verse 1. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. 
Solomon says wisdom will change everything about you. Now, again, when we talk about wisdom, Solomon has parsed out two kinds of life. Life under the sun, meaning all that takes place in this world. And then he said life under heaven and how we can live in this world under the authority of God. And so he said, listen, when you, when you live in wisdom, what he's talking about is godly wisdom, not just good financial advice, but godly financial advice. Not just good marriage advice, but godly marriage advice. And sometimes those things are different. And so he says, when you live in wisdom, it even will change your countenance. Like it changes everything about a person. Godly wisdom changes, transforms everything. Verse 2, I say keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, remember our theme today is the fear of the Lord. So everything falls under the fear of the Lord. So if I fear God, what will I do? Well, I will obey what he says, especially the things I don't like. It's easier to obey the things I like, right? If the rule was drive as fast as you want, that wouldn't require obedience from me. Speed limits require obedience, right? And so fear of the Lord says obey the things that you disagree with, you dislike, you don't want to do. That's what obedience is. And we obey now because of a fear of God, not a fear of man. So we don't fear the person, we fear God, right? That we give him that authority and we know that God's authority is unending, so hear this again, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. So listen, keep the king's command. So obey the authorities over you, not a strong suit of the church over the last year and a half. Now why obey the king? Because of God's oath to him. So God puts leaders in charge. So there's nothing, if we believe anything about God, we know that there is nothing in this universe, nothing anywhere that is outside of God's control. If there's one little thing that's outside of God's control, then God isn't God. God is not the God we proclaim. He's not all-powerful. He's not omnipotent. He's not all that if there's something outside of his control. And so even in that, it's beyond just outside of his control, but then God puts people in authority. In fact, we're going to see this. The beginning of Daniel next week will tell us that God exiled Israel and allowed Nebuchadnezzar to conquer them and capt take them captive. That they, it's, it's what God does. He doesn't just allow, but even ordains and, and, and causes. And we need to see that, that God is doing more than we can tell. God is doing more than we can understand, and God puts people in charge. Now, that's really tough to hear in America, because we vote, so we think we do it, right? And then we disagree with people, and we tend to put people in, in political categories, which they put themselves in political categories, but we tend to identify with them to an unhealthy degree, and oftentimes think my, my political camp versus the other one, one is more godly than another, and I would suggest that's not true. When we do that, our leader, doesn't matter if it's Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden, whoever's next, whatever, we assign them this level of equivalence to our faith. God says, I put them all in charge. I let them all be, right? So I say, keep the king's command, verse 2, because of God's oath to him. Here's Romans 13. Paul is now writing in a different context. I'll explain that in a second. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So we'll leave that up just for a second. So Israel is, under, is a theocracy led by God, led by a king God chooses. So God put the king in place, and so it feels very different than what we do today. 
Romans is written under the Roman emperors who are ungodly, pagan, worship other gods, don't worship God, all these things. And Paul writes to the church in that setting to not resist the authorities, right? Because God has appointed them. You can take these two and there's any kind of circumstance in the middle, either you know, they're godly or they're completely ungodly, and God says still he has placed them in charge. Maybe for a good reason. Maybe like Solomon, like David. Maybe for a different reason, like Nebuchadnezzar. Our job isn't to figure out who's right and wrong, but to do right, to do what God calls us to do. Remember, the fear of the Lord. That's our posture for this. Verse 3, do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. So he says, fighting against the leadership. Now, there's going to be edges to this. There's going to be places where people resist. But basically, the generic starting point, he says, is fighting against leadership is evil. Now, let's qualify that in America. We have the right to vote. We have the right to protest. We have the right to do things. We, what we don't have, and ignore what constitutional rights you've been given today, what, what right we don't have as Christians is to violate the laws. We only get to obey the things we like and disobey the things we don't like. We don't get to be the arbiter of that. We are called to be obedient. And we do so not because Trump is right, Biden is right, Obama's right, Bush is right, the next person's right, Newsom's right, the next person's right, whatever. We do that out of the fear of the Lord. That God is doing something greater and that by my obedience I might represent Christ better than by my disobedience. And this is an area that the church in America was horrible at over the last year and a half. And the public forum of fighting and disobedience and name-calling. And, and, and today, you can't disagree like in the past and, well, I think one thing, you think another. It's not that. It's, it's I believe one thing and you're evil if you disagree. We've gotten to that place. Submit to the authority out of fear of the Lord. Verse 4, for the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? And I know we don't have a king. We have a president. I know we have a constitution that gives them authority, but as soon as you keep playing out, but we don't have, but we don't have, but we go by this, but we go, eventually you find yourself arguing with God. I'll let you figure that out in your own life, but eventually you're arguing with God about who you're supposed to submit to. Verse 6, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Whoever keeps a command, whoever is obedient, whoever follows along, will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Now, there is a place to resist, to use the modern kind of hashtag resist, right, kind of that pushback. Let me suggest it's not where we've been doing it, and, and, and I'll leave it there. You can agree or disagree. Next week, we'll actually look at that. We're going to look at the, cap, the, uh, the Jewish young men who are captive who are taken into Babylon, who are then, the wrong word is brainwashed, what's the, indoctrinated is the word, indoctrinated in Babylonian culture. That means Babylonian religion, that means Babylonian literature, that means Babylonian thought, Babylonian worship, and Babylonian practice. They, they are indoctrinated into this, and yet they are standouts. So the A students, they're the ones that pass the test on critical race theory and evolution. They get an A. 
and yet they never wander from God. We'll see that and we'll ask where, what line do they draw, what lines don't they draw. You'll be surprised. In fact, you'll be challenged by how far into the culture they can live without being disobedient to God. And ultimately, that's what we do. We follow along out of fear of the Lord. We, we follow, we're obedient, not because we love this president or the last president or the next president. We don't follow along because we agree. We follow along, along when we disagree, and we follow along because we fear God. Because we don't want to be found disagreeing, arguing, disobedient to God who is never wrong. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although a man's trouble lies heavy on him, there's a time. Remember that message, right? There's a time for this. There's a time for this. There's a, there's a time for love. There's a, there's a time for peace. But there's also a time to resist. There's a time for war. There's a time for this. Wisdom is knowing when that time is. If there's a big hole that's been shown in the faith of the American church, it's understanding that time. And what is or should be resisted and what should not be. Verse 7, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? So if the issue is there's something you're being called to be obedient with, and, and, there's, and, and the problem is I don't know what's right or wrong, but God says submit to the authorities, but I don't know where, right? Then the real issue is, well, I, who can tell the future, right? Like how am I supposed to know what God is doing in this? And Solomon would just say, you don't know. And here's just kind of a, a key to our faith. You're not going to know. Right? There's an entire group of Christians that are trying to cram a timeline into books of the Bible about what happens next. And each time they do, they miss decade after decade, antichrist after antichrist. Right? Mark of the beast after mark of the beast after mark of the beast. Right? It's because we don't know. We know what God tells us. We know what God teaches us. We don't know what God is going to do or maybe even what God is doing. Sometimes in retrospect, we can look backwards and understand, oh God, now I, I see what you were doing. But in the moment and for the future, we just don't know. See, the gospel is, is that. The, the gospel is wrapped up in that moment that we don't know what God is doing. right? Imagine you're the disciples and you're living alongside Jesus. You spent three years with the most profound human being you've ever met. He is clearly God and he is clearly human and you don't have a category for that. Right, like I, I don't even know what to say there. We have this term, Messiah, God's promises fulfilled in this person. They had a term for it. They didn't even have a category for someone who is God and is human both. Fully God and yet fully human. And they listened to him, and, and they knew the promise of the Old Testament, that, that God would come in and solve the sin issue somehow, some way, that God had promised through Israel would come this Savior, this Messiah. And here is Jesus, and they believe it's Jesus. They don't really have categories or definitions or understanding of even who Jesus is, and so much so as you're reading through some of the Gospels, like John often gives us this parenthetical note that says, listen, Jesus said this, and he'll be going along, then little parentheses like, we didn't get it at all. Like, we didn't understand this until way later. So I'm kind of giving you a clue right here as you're reading this. Yeah, we didn't get this. Well, how could you? Like, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. But it's okay. I'll be back three days later. How could you grasp that? 
We struggle with it, and we know the whole story. So the disciples are watching, and they're saying, listen, I don't understand. But we know that Jesus had to enter into human flesh, that he had to live a sinless life, that he had to die a death that you and I deserve, that the disciples deserved, that the, the Jews and the Romans all deserved who put him to death. But he had to do it to take our place, that his death would cover our sin and his resurrection would give us life. That the gospel is wrapped up in a I don't get what God is doing in this moment story. Even as Jesus prepares to ascend and he's with his church, he says, listen, it's better that I go away. They're like, no, it's really better when you're here. No, no, it's better that I go away because I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to empower you. You're going to be me here on earth to everyone else. Now, here's how you do it. Fear the Lord. Live how God teaches us to live. Live that practical wisdom out. Be obedient in moments that don't make sense. That's the gospel. Listen to this in Revelation 1. As the ascended Jesus begins to reveal himself, right? We have a kind of a promise of Jesus. We have Jesus in human flesh, and then we have Jesus ascending, and they kind of lose sight for a minute. And Jesus says, no, this is who I am now. It's Revelation 1, 5. He says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. I oversee them. I'm the first one of the firstborn of the dead. I'm the only one who's died and come back to be alive eternally. I know what God is doing. I'm God who's lived and died and rose again, and I'm in charge of the kings of the world. He reminds us that only he knows. That we can't possibly comprehend all that God is doing or anything that God is doing, maybe. But we can be obedient to it. Verse 8. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. There's this reminder here that you don't control death, right? That you don't pick the day you go. You don't pick how long you live. But there's this ever-present reminder that death is it's ubiquitous. It's, it's for all of us, that we will die. Unless Jesus returns first, which if history is any teacher, we will all die. And we don't choose when. It could be catastrophic, it could be on the way home, it could be right here while we're in church, who knows. Or it could be in decades from now. But it should be a reminder that this short life is not all that there is. Verse 9, and all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. I applied my, my heart, I gave myself to all the stuff that happens on earth, and he's reminding us fruitlessly, he's been writing about this all along, like I tried this, I tried, I tried to give myself to this, nothing is fulfilling except for God. I observed it, while applying my heart to all that's done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt, when I had authority, when I, when I could do this. I applied myself to the things that everybody wants in life. And, and he's reminding us, listen, I've told you about all this, and nothing is fulfilling but God. Verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried, and they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Here should be a strong warning to all of us. I want you to hear what the wicked do. He says they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things, this is also vanity. These are people that went to church that he's saying were wicked. And people championed them 
like they were good, but they were wicked. That ought to slow us down a minute. Then we should remember, sometimes we get behind wicked people. Right? The, my whole issue with the church and politics isn't that I don't believe in things. It's that I don't believe that anybody can be our answer. And I believe with all my heart, they're all wicked. That they're all, I know there's an exception out there somewhere. I just never see one. But we place our trust in human beings. We see them go in and out of church and do good things in the city. And we praise them and we miss the fact they're wicked too. That verse should scare us. Verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. There's two things here. One, when you do something wrong, you're not immediately just, you know, smacked back into play. There's not an immediate penalty most of the time, right? And when someone else does something wrong, they're not immediately judged by God for that wrongdoing. And so we lose sight of what's right and what's wrong. We lose sight of what we should be doing or who we should be behind and not behind or the role that they should play in our life, in our faith, in our community. Because judgment isn't immediate, Solomon says, we often lose sight of right and wrong. Verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it would be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Here's what he says. Though they do the wrong thing a hundred times over and over again, it seems like they live these long, happy lives. It's not so. Those who fear the Lord have a long and prosperous forever. I know that we will all be judged, Solomon says. I know no matter what we see, no matter how many times they get away with it, they're not getting away with it. And no matter how many times you suck it up and do the right thing out of fear of the Lord, it's not overlooked. Unfortunately, we're not normally that. We're normally the wicked. We're normally the sinful, and somehow we get away with it so often we forget even sometimes it's sinful. Or we do it so often we forget. Maybe we think maybe God has forgotten. And then we do sacrifice a little bit, and we're like, where is God now? Where are people bowing down telling me, oh, you're such a good person now? Like, where's God? We miss eternity is where everything is right. Here is where everything is broken. Psalm 1-6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Scripture is not unclear. Scripture is not vague about how everything plays out. Scripture is not vague about how life works. Sometimes the wicked prosper. A lot of times the wicked prosper. But we know their end. We know our end even more importantly heard a pastor say, listen, all the good that wicked people get in this earth, that's all they get. Let them have it. Let them have all the riches. Let them have all the Ferraris, whatever it might be. We know. We know our faith says we have forever the presence and the glory of God forever. That everything here will pale by comparison to what we have. It's right now that we live in such a way that might be sacrificial. And let me just Kind of, again, let me give you my little parenthetical note. It's not all that sacrificial here. It might be sacrificial in sub-Saharan Africa or in, 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 in other places where Christianity is being persecuted. We don't suffer much. And because of that, we don't suffer well. 
when persecution becomes, do we wear masks or not? We're a little soft. We live here as sacrificially as God calls us to live because we get to show other people Jesus. We get to show him God who became flesh, who lived and died and rose again for them because he loves them. We get to show them forever. We get to intervene in the, in the actions, the deeds of the wicked who will be judged. We get to intervene and show them Jesus. Now, we don't have the power to save them. Jesus does. But we get to be Jesus in the flesh to people, our loved ones, our neighbors, the people we work with or go to school with or whatever it might be. We get to be that. You know, like we started, Israel was that chosen covenant people to bring redemption to the nations. We are that chosen covenant people. We get to bring the message of redemption in Christ to the nations. And it starts here. We don't have to go anywhere. We just go next door. They need Jesus. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said also this is vanity, right? That we need to look at this life with an eternal perspective. Sometimes wicked things happen to us and good things happen to bad people and all that kind of stuff happens. But God makes it right in the end. Verse 15, I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given, them, given him under the sun. It's that reminder of simple life. Just simplicity is pleasing. Having that meal with the family, working hard, earning something honest, coming home and being tired and getting a good night's sleep, all that stuff is the joy of life. We try and add to it, make it more complex. Verse 16, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So here's Solomon's kind of summary, like, hey, if you missed all the sporadic pieces, here it is, right? That we will not know in this life all the things that God is doing, but we can trust in him. That we can trust in him to give us how to live, to what step to take next. And, and sometimes it's not the big things. Who do I marry? What job do I take? Do I buy this house? Not buy this house. Sometimes it's simply, how do I submit in this time and, and represent Christ the best that I can to the watching world around us? My biggest heartbreak of the last year and a half is we had this moment a pandemic actually hit the world, like the whole world, right? Not 9-11, where something happened to us. Not Pearl Harbor, not World War, not, not any of the world wars. A pandemic hit the whole world. And the church had this moment, year plus ago, to be different. To be a place where anybody could turn and find comfort. Find joy, find hope in a season where there was a lack of hope, where there was a ton of fear, where politicians, I, I think everybody at first 
Remember that 9-12 movement, like the day after 9-11, how everybody was kind of on the same page, right? There was an initial piece of that. There was these weeks in March where kind of everybody was on the same page trying to solve the problem, but it didn't take long for politics to dive in and divide people and, and start causing fear and anger and division. There was a moment right then where the church could have been different, but instead the church was too captured by the culture, too divided by politics, too separated by a sense of what is right and wrong according to me, or worse, according to a constitution. Not a lot of fearing God. We could have had that. We had that moment. Even if it was just here, we could have been that people to a frightened world, to a hopeless world that we had, to a divided world. Right on the heels of that was George Floyd's death. I don't care where you land on the sides of the conversation, we had a moment. Instead of being on sides of a conversation, we had a moment where we could have been different. But the church was equally divided, just like the rest of the culture. We are called to be different. We are called to fear God, to obey people, to obey the human authorities, to live distinctly, to live in ways that other people in the world, in the culture, in our community don't live, in a way that is submitted to authority because we fear God. And because we fear God that we would look like Jesus. And then when we look like Jesus, the world can see hope. That a world could have been loved by the church a year, 15 months, 16 months, whatever, ago that we could have loved the people around us uniquely would have been the place we could have been. But rather, a fear of conspiracy, a, a fear of power, a fear of a virus, a fear of death, a fear of this, a fear of my constitutional rights being trampled, a fear of all these things took over what should have been a fear of the Lord where we needed to fear God and be different. We didn't, for the most part. Some of you did great, don't get me wrong. Some of us just completely missed in places that were painful, but the church is what I'm talking about. The church in America is what I'm talking about. We need to be different. I can't control the church in America. You can't control the church in America. But it's a snapshot of who we are. We can control us. We can control how we live and whom we fear. That we need to fear the Lord. That we need to lose some of those kind of modern respect, honor. We need to fear God. That we need to know that God is God over this life and the next. That God is God over forever. And that God is God over our president. God is God over kings. God is God over China and Russia and U.S. and everywhere else. That God is still God. That Jesus says, I am the ruler and authority over all kings. And that we are to fear him who places people on a throne and takes them off. And we'll see more of this in Daniel. But for today, I want to close with two words out of wisdom literature, both from Proverbs. They're from Proverbs chapter 1. It says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In Proverbs, same author Solomon, he gives lots of categories. One of the wise... And what are fools? And fools are not the ignorant, which he has another category. Ignorance means you don't know. Fools are those who know and don't change. Wise are those who learn and their lives become transformed by wisdom. 
fools hear, even understand, and don't apply. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fear of God is where we begin. Verse 28 and 29, they will call upon me, but I, this is God speaking, same passage. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but not, will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Right there in the wisdom literature, here's God found speaking to, the faith, to, to people who profess to have a faith. He says, and, and, and when you keep not fearing me, when you keep living your own way, then here's the outcome. You're going to call on me, and I'm going to plug my ears. You're going to call on me, I'm just not going to answer because you didn't fear the Lord. Church, we need to be in a better place. Whatever's coming, right? The Delta virus has obviously got more cases. It's very transmissible. It's not very deadly. There's hope in that and there's problems in that. We don't know if COVID's going away or not going away. It could become a part of our forever. We don't know. I'm not concerned so much about that. I'm concerned about the next pandemic, the next thing that we have an opportunity to be different in, will we? That we the church, that we who are Christ's own people, that we will be different, that we will live differently, and that we could become the place where people can turn, no matter what the circumstances, 9-11, COVID, the next thing, whatever. That will begin or end with the fear of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you lived a life who, I would say modeled this, but it's an understatement. Jesus, you lived fearing God. And that's, that's a hard thing to say with you, because you, you are God. But your prayer in the garden, as you look towards the hardest thing in the world, as you look towards your persecution, beating, crucifixion, and death, as you look towards that, you prayed, take this away from me, but not my will, but your will be done. We need to learn that prayer, Lord. We need to learn that there are times that what we want isn't always in conjunction with what God wants. And that the right thing, see the right thing, Jesus, is you would never have been falsely accused. You would have never been falsely condemned. You, the author of life, would have never died. That's what's right. That's what's true. And yet God had a better plan. We need to learn that sometimes what we see as right and true isn't always the best. And it isn't always what is God's plan. So Jesus, help us to live like you. Because we are yours, because we have your spirit, help us to live like you. We pray that you would shape us and make us a people that are different in ways that you call us to be different. Help us to understand that. Let us be different. Let us be prepared for the next, whatever comes next. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Today is communion. We're going to celebrate communion together. And it's fitting that we understand that communion celebrates the body and the blood of Christ, the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. That in that, we have this, we have this perfect Savior who gives his life for us. That he suffers for something he did not do, but that we did. In our life, we call that wrong. We call that unfair. And yet Jesus did that. That was God's plan so that God could be unfair. Because unfair is, I get any benefit. You get salvation. Those things are unfair because we don't deserve them. 
So it's in this gospel moment, it's in this breaking of the bread and, 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 and the, the drinking of the cup that we remember that the unfair benefits us. And so then we're called to live in an unfair system and benefit others that our call is to respond. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, listen, I, I want you to, to slow down when you take communion because you're doing it and you're going crazy over here. That's a paraphrase. You're doing it, you're going crazy. But I want you to assess yourself. I want you to, to contemplate what you're doing. And as he explains it, he says, this is for the church. This is something the church does, not the unchurched or the, or the non-believer. This is a celebration for those who are Christ's. And so for if you're in Jesus, you, you, you get to come forward and do this. If you're not, and you'd like to be, by all means, come forward. With one of our elders and his wife that are serving us today, and you can come forward and come down the middle and, and take our communion and, and then go out to where you're seated. But tell either one of them, tell them, listen, I, I've never come to faith before. Let them pray with you. But he says to the church, he says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup and he says, this is a, co- this is a covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And he blessed them and he called them to take and eat and to take and drink. And Paul gives us these words that, that he teaches to the church. He says, listen, as often as you do this, as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. You proclaim the gospel over yourselves. You remind yourself of the blessing that you receive. You remind yourself of all that you've been given that, that we frankly don't deserve. And that we live out of that. And so I'm going to invite John and Lisa, will you guys come up to the front and, and church? Will you take your time, come forward when you're ready, there's no rush, and take communion, let communion be a reminder that we all get things that we don't deserve and we get to then live and give that away to others.